Welcome to the West Virginia Writers Podcast, a service of West Virginia Writers Incorporated, the Mountain State's largest all-volunteer nonprofit organization dedicated to writers. Established and incorporated in 1977, West Virginia Writers continues to support writers and writing statewide through program sponsorship, an annual writing contest, and an annual summer writers conference. This podcast is dedicated to promoting the organization, its members, and events, as well as writers throughout Appalachia and beyond. And now, here is your host, Eric Fritzhughes. Thank you, Gertrude and Ola listeners. Welcome to Episode 73 of the West Virginia Writers Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Fritzhughes. I'm recording and posting this episode on Tuesday, March the 10th, 2015. Now, for those of you following along with your calendar at home, that leaves only five days until the 2015 edition of the West Virginia Writers Annual Writing Contest reaches its first deadline on March 15th. What do I mean about first deadline? Aren't deadlines supposed to be set in stone? Well, that's often true, but we're writers and deadlines mean nothing to us. We watch them sail right on past and call our editors and beg for an extension. However, with the extension often comes a penalty, and that's true for us as well. West Virginia writers will continue to accept entries until March the 31st. However, our penalty is that any entry postmark between March 16th and March 31st will require a $2 late fee per entry for the adult contest and a $1 late fee for the New Mountain Voices student contest. If you would like to avoid paying late fees, and who among us doesn't, please have your entries in the mail to me postmarked by March 15th. But Eric, you might be saying, especially if you're one of the people with a calendar in front of you, March 15th falls on a Sunday. How am I supposed to get my entries postmarked by March 15th if the post office is closed? Well, I do have a solution to that problem too, but you're going to have to wait till the very end of the podcast to find out. Don't worry, the whole podcast is under 25 minutes long and there's entertainment in the meantime. For the past two episodes, we've been featuring recorded live readings of the winners of West Virginia Writers' Annual Writing Contest. However, the Annual Writing Contest is not the only such writing contest that we hold. There are several more that we run during our Annual Writers' Conference, which is held the second weekend of June at Cedar Lakes Conference Center in Ripley, West Virginia, and a bunch of information about you can find at our website, wvwriters.org. But I digress. Today's podcast features a winner of one of those contests, Janet Lilly. This recorded live reading was captured at the third week of the Literary Tea Series created and hosted by the Greenbrier Valley Theater in Lewisburg. Summer Conference, which is always the second weekend in June. 
One of the other competitions that we do exclusively at that, at that uh, writing conference is called the Writer's Wall. And we invite anybody that comes to the conference to post one page stories, prose pieces, or poetry to a big, basically a big bulletin board. And everybody that um, is registered for the conference can vote on their favorite. And so we have one of the winners of the Writer's Wall as our second reader this evening. Uh, Janet Lilly writes from her home nestled in the woods where she can gaze out her picture window and watch the stunning deer at dawn or a bunny feasting on a blade of grass. Uh, she's written for West Virginia South Magazine, has had, also had two submissions accepted in Women's World Magazine. She was also the first runner-up in the Call of a Lifetime contest by Family Circle Magazine. This past June, she won third place for her entry, They, for the Writer's Wall Prose Competition. And she's currently working on a magazine article about a quaint restaurant in the little town of Pax, West Virginia. Janet Lilly. from a prompt at the library where I'm a member of the writing group. So I thought that might be interesting to y'all. They walked hand in hand as she entered the hospital for the procedure that they didn't know would allow her to walk out or not. They had always done everything together since they married at the tender age of 16. Friends, relatives, said they would never last. They'd been married 54 years, had four children, eight grandchildren, and two great-grandchildren of whom they adore. They battled many wars, both personal and jointly, but they are always victorious because they stuck together. They stopped in an entrance of the hospital door and looked deeply into one another's eyes. It seemed like an eternity. They knew the thoughts of one another, yet they needed to be spoken aloud. They needed to be voiced and heard. Tenderly he kissed her lips and looked into her eyes and said to her, this is just another bump in the road for us. Yes, you are walking in, and no, you may not walk out. We both know that. They may have to remove your limbs, dear, but nothing or no one can ever remove the strong, courageous, wonderful woman that you are. They can never take away that or the love that I have for you and always will have. With a smile, they joined arms and forged on into the hospital to face what they had before them. Could I ask what the prompt was? Beg pardon? Could I ask what the prompt was? They? Just they. Mm -hmm. This one also was a prompt <laughs> from the um, library. And the prompt was, if you're not there, there will be a big explosion. <laughs> <laughs> granny, Granny, you've got to help me. 
The home ec teacher, Miss Crafton, wants everyone to bake a cake in front of the entire class, and that includes me. She'll grade us on the finished product, how well we do in preparation and explanation of the prep and ingredients, and it will count as half of our semester grade. I need to pass this class. What am I gonna do, Granny? You know I can't cook. You know I always just watch you as you cook. And I talk and I sample the goodies and lick the bowl. I never pay any attention to what you do or what you put in where or how much or what a pinch is or what pan you use for whatever or what temperature things are to be cooked. Oh, and I am so doomed. And this is all that Susie Shepherd's fault. She is the Julia child of the class. <laughs> and boy, can she cook. Everything she cooks turns out so wonderful. The consistency, the texture, the taste. At least that's what Miss Crafton always says and raves about. Bon appetit, Susie. I like to bon appetit her and her bright cooking idea right in her bump pan. <laughs> oh, Granny, you always volunteer at the high school with the home ec projects. Please, please volunteer to help with this class project. It's next Friday with the first cooking test beginning at 9 a.m. Miss Crafton is looking for volunteers and she even asked me if I would check to see you were if, if you were available to help. I've got to get a good grade on this test, and I especially can't make a fool of myself in front of my entire class. And that Julia child, I mean Susie Shepherd's mouth is just watering to see me fail. You know how bad I am at cooking. I don't have to remind you of the time that Aunt Millie told me to put jello in my cake, mixed to make it moist and tasty. Well, the next day, I decided to bake a cake to surprise her mother. And I did what Aunt Millie said. I put a box of Jello in with my cake mix, and when the cake came out, it was, mm, looked a little jiggly. <laughs> Rubbery is a more correct term. You could have bounced it against the wall like a ping pong ball, played two games of table tennis with it, and then used it for a hockey sack. <laughs> to this day, good old Aunt Millie tells the cake story, and she just howls. I truly do not find the humor in it myself, especially when that crazy old goat's one that told me to put gelatin in the cake mix to begin with. Gelatin. Gelatin equals jello. J-E-L-L-O. Well, I think, when I think of jello, you know, I think of boiling water, it has to set up in the fridge. I think of jello gelatin, not jello pudding. If she had said pudding, then I would have known. I'll never live that one down. So, Granny, you see how much I need you. I truly can't do this without you there. Come on, Granny. I'm telling you, Granny, if you're not there, there could be a big explosion. And we really don't want that now, do we? <laughs> Granny's Blue Ribbon Pie Recipe. Mama had to work, so I spent a lot of time with Granny. I love Granny. 
She was round, stern, yet gentle, jolly with a beautiful smile, a godly woman with the prettiest white hair. Sometimes she even had blue hair, which totally cracked me up. <laughs> her name was Emma Faye Lilly. I'm Granny's namesake. My middle name is Faye. I remember so many things about my granny. Her big black Bible always lying open on the end of her armchair where she'd been reading it. Her giant transistor radio tuned into the old time gospel hour preaching of Oliver B. Green, sitting on the porcelain top of the old timey flower bin cabinet in her small kitchen where she did all of her baking. She washed on a regular washer and hung her clothes out on the line. She starched those pillowcases and ironed them just as crisp as they could be. And she cooked. Boy, could my granny cook. She made the best chicken and dumplings in the world, and her recipe for lemon meringue pie was second to none. She won the blue ribbon every year at the Lily Reunion with her lemon meringue pie, and then first place at the state fair. Relatives begged Granny for a copy of her pie recipe, but Granny seriously guarded her lemon meringue pie recipe and would never give it to anyone. She just said that one of these days, one of the young'uns, as she called us, would wind up with that recipe, and she'd give me a wink. <laughs> Granny lived a long life and passed at the age of 85, leaving the, leaving the old flower bin cabinet to me. When I got the cabinet home, I started reminiscing about the times that Granny and I shared and how I missed her. I sure wish she was here so I could watch her do her magic again, and even better, sample the goods. But I guess Granny's lemon meringue pies are a thing of the past. Just a memory, like her. I remember thinking what a shame it was that she never gave any one of us young'uns her secret recipe when I suddenly remembered how each time Granny would gingerly fix one of those pies, she would ever so slightly crank the handle to the flower bin and out would roll a small, worn, hand-scribbled piece of paper. She'd flatten it, flatten it out and then lay it on the cabinet beside her mixing bowl until all the ingredients were blended together. And then with a wink at me, she'd tuck the roll up piece of paper safely back in its hiding place. Could it be? Would that piece of paper Holding my breath, I ever so slightly cranked the handle to the flower bin, and to my surprise, out rolled Granny's handwritten lemon meringue pie recipe. Oh my heavens, look at the time. I have some items to pick up at the supermarket. I have an uncontrollable craving for lemon meringue pie. And you know, the state fair is coming up in August. Uh, <laughs> you know, once in a while we have those moments in life where something occurs and it's like we've, we feel like we've slipped into another reality. We've fallen through the wormhole and we've popped up in some alternate universe where the rules of, of reality operate differently. Uh, recently, I was visiting my Uncle Terrell down in South Mississippi, and my cousin Amy was there, and my sister was there, and we decided we're going to have a good old down-home meal. 
we don't have Mama or my Aunt Doraline's cooking skills, but somewhere between us, we can probably make something. And so I took it upon myself, I was going to make a cobbler. And I was going to use my wife's recipe, because I never knew Mama's recipe for making a cobbler. And my wife's tastes just like my Mama's to me. And it's like a cup of sugar, a cup of flour, a cup of milk, and you bake it for an indeterminate amount of time. <laughs> I couldn't remember a lot of the details, but I figured, you know, I'd get in there and I'd, I'd figure it out. I even picked blueberries from my papa's blueberry plants that were at the house next door. I was feeling pretty good about myself. And I got in there and was going through the, the flower bin, trying to determine, is this a cup? And I finally, it's just this, this scoop. And I turned to my cousin and said, is this a full cup? It looks a little light. She's like, well, it should say on the handles. It doesn't. This is my uncle's flower bin. It doesn't say it on the handles. She's like, well, what does it say? And I'm like, Purina Cat Chow. <laughs> <laughs> so we finally determined the Purina Cat Chow scoop was not a full cup. We finally found a full cup, and I made my cobbler. And my sister and my cousin were like, why are you using a recipe like that? Why, why are you even bothering with flour for the crust? Mamma never did. And I was like, what are you talking about? She goes, she just crumbled up hamburger buns and hot dog buns. <laughs> and I was like, you are kidding me. There's no way her cobbler, which tasted so amazing, was made with hamburger and hot dog buns. They both swore that it did. And so I'm now in the other universe, I guess. <laughs> Thank you all for coming out to the Literary Tea uh, third edition. We have one more next week of prose. And then uh, on, I believe, the 20th, I didn't check that date before I got up here, but... Hmm? It is the 20th. The 20th. We're going to have the community poetry tea, where we invite anybody that has poetry of their own or just poetry that they like to come and recite it for one and all here in this room. Thank you all for coming. Thanks again to Janet Lilly for coming out to read at the Literary Tea Series, held across each September and October at the Greenbrier Valley Theater in Lewisburg. I actually happen to be appearing there in an upcoming production of Skin of Our Teeth by Thornton Wilder. That's going to start April 10th through the 25th, so that's my shameless plug of the episode. I'll probably have another big one that isn't related to theater coming up in the next few weeks. So... The post office is closed on March 15th, the final day to get your entries into the mail if you would like to avoid a late fee, or multiple late fees, as the case may be. What are you, the last-minute submitter, to do? Well, as a last-minute submitter to contests myself, there is a time-tested method that I personally developed, which allows you to get your entries postmarked by March 15th, yet not physically put them in the mail until March 16th. Here's what you do. 1. Assemble your entries before midnight on March 15th. 2. Put all of them, along with your contest entry form, into a big envelope addressed to me at the address on the entry form. 3. Weigh that envelope using a kitchen scale or a postage scale. Or the bathroom scale, if it happens to be that sensitive. 4. Use the weight you find there on that scale to purchase and print a priority mail label from the Postal Service at USPS.com. Or you can use stamps.com if you have that. 5. 
When your label is printed, it will have the postmark of 315 printed on it, ensuring that it is postmarked by March 15th. Then you can mail it out on Monday, March 16th with no problem. Heck, you could wait till March 17th if you're feeling froggy. However, don't take too long to mail it, because if I start getting a slew of March 15th contest entries on March 25th, I'm apt to get a bit irate. So get on the stick about it. Now, as to contest entries that I've been receiving, I absolutely must congratulate the vast majority of you on following the contest guidelines. Over the past two weeks, I've had amazingly few entries that have issues I've had to contact anybody about before I could process it. That is unprecedented in my experience. I'm so proud of you. If you've not read the contest guidelines, though, and you still plan to submit, please do so before sending in your entries, or it will be you that I have to contact. Did I mention the part about me getting irate late in the contest season? Yeah, that applies doubly to folks who don't read the contest guidelines and send stuff in anyway. Remember my motto, if you follow the guidelines, you cannot go wrong. For official contest entry forms with included guidelines, please visit our website at wvwriters.org. There you will also find the frequently asked questions list for the contest, as well as the full list of 2015 judges, judge bios, a handy must-read contest pre-submission checklist, and more. All right, now drag your chair closer to your speakers, or if you're listening to this in headphones, squeeze them in a bit tighter, because here's the part where I'm going to give you a bit of insider information on the contest. Don't worry, it's not exclusive to the podcast. I'll be giving it out on Facebook and the West Virginia Writers Roundtable and Twitter and any other source online I can find a bit later. If you're still on the fence about submitting your writing to the contest, where it can potentially be in competition with the work of dozens of other writers, and you have a mind to submit to a category where your odds of winning might be better than average, I have a few suggestions on some categories you should have a second look at. For instance, Appalachian writing, short story, short poetry, and long poetry are the categories that traditionally receive the most entries of the entire contest. If you're looking to enter a category, though, where your odds are a bit better than those, you might take a look at nonfiction, screenplay, or book-length prose, which are a bit more specialized, and we don't get quite as many entries as those first four that I mentioned. Or, if you'd like even better odds than that, you should try out one of the more niche categories, such as the Pearl S. Buck Award for Writing for Social Change, and our two topic categories, Survival and genre fantasy. Also, please remember, if you've never won a cash prize in our contest and have never been published in a publication with a print run of more than 5,000 copies, you qualify for the Emerging Writers categories. Those are designed to give newer writers a leg up against more seasoned writers in the contest. We've seen some absolutely amazing work come from those categories, which you're going to find out when you hear Rachel Geringer's upcoming reading in our next episode. Find out about all this information at wvwriters.org. Our opening voiceover was provided by Marcus Vowell. Our show's theme music is used with permission by its composer, Pops Walker, whose albums can be found at cdbaby.com. This podcast is a production of Mr. Herman's Production Company Limited and was recorded at the Mr. Herman Studios atop a very muddy hill in Greenbrier County.